My name is Hussein Kasai. I'm the CEO and one of the co-founders at Onfido. Onfido are an ID verification service. That's their CEO, Hussein Kasai. And this is Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bonnell Advisors, the consultants who help you expand your business stateside. I'm Naz, or Nasjan Tavakurli-Far, and every two weeks we'll be talking to companies who've made the leap to find out more about their journey and any advice they have for those following in their footsteps. Mount Bonnell CEO Sebastian Sauborn will also be answering your questions, so send them over to info at mountbonnell.com. We've put that in the show notes. This week, Sebastian and I visited the offices of Onfido, who help companies verify ID. Now, many services require ID verification, and we users are increasingly asked to provide this using our smartphones. Onfido use AI-based technology to assess if someone's ID is authentic. The company was founded in 2012 by three students at Oxford University, and they made the leap to the US pretty quickly. We talked to one of their founders and the CEO, Hussein Kasai, to find out more and about how they set up their offices in San Francisco and in New York. So what do you guys do at Onfido? We help over 1,500 businesses verify the government's IDs and facial biometrics of the customers that they're onboarding. So if you're signing up to an online remittance platform, for instance, at the point of registration, you're asked to take a photo of your ID and a photo of your face. And then behind the scenes, we're using machine learning to ensure that the ID seems genuine and that the photo on the ID matches your face so that you can be onboarded. That is actually a, a, a very good service. I mean, I, um, uh, I'm a partner in a firm of chartered accountants and we always have to do this onboarding process with clients. It's required by law that you have to identify your client, know your customer essentially. And uh, nowadays, um, if you don't have a system like on Fido's system, the client has to go and um, have their ID certified by a notary, approve address, so it can be quite time consuming and also expensive to do that. So I think this, this solves an excellent problem. I assume that you have a lot of uh, financial service providers, um, accounting firms similar in your client base here in Europe. We do, correct. Roughly 60% of the client base are financial services, and it's a broad range. So anything from loans, remittance, online banking, payments. Uh, accounting is a smaller use case, but it definitely is one. Uh, who, who are the other 40% of your clients? So it, it spans a pretty broad range, Transportation is a large one, car rentals, asset sharing generally, so home sharing, uh, for instance. But you could consider uh, things that you may not have thought of, such as voting or entering into offices, having prescription drugs delivered to your home, or even if you have an online doctor sort of platform, such as Babylon, even though you're just speaking to a doctor seeking health advice, you may think, why would I need to be verified? Well, the reason is if a health services data needs to be pulled, they need to ensure you are who you claim to be, for instance. Could you ex really uh, explain really quick um, uh, what your software actually does? So let's say I want to open a bank account somewhere and this bank happens to use your system. How does it work? Sure. So when we looked at the way people were verified back when we started uh, back in 2012, we saw that businesses tended to have two options. One was to see everyone face-to-face, -face, like your example of uh, getting at something and, and identity document notarized. The alternative is to go inside a bank branch, for instance. And then the other option is to be verified you're using a credit bureau. Now, the challenge with 
Uh, both is that seeing face-to-face, having face-to-face interactions is not convenient and it's time-consuming. And being reliant on the credit bureau, given some of the data breaches, it may not be as secure it once was. So what we are doing is just replicating that same process. So when we see an ID, to your question, how does the technology work? We are comparing the patterns and, and everything, all the data points on that ID with the tens of millions of checks that we've done. So every time our machine learning models see an ID, they know what patterns to expect, what where the font style and type and so on should be, so that we get very good at assessing as to whether it seems genuine or not. And there are certain fraudulent IDs that even the human eye would not be able to pick out, and certain machine learning models can. And then the second part of it, as for facial recognition goes, there's a selfie still photo option, or there's a video liveness option. With the video liveness option, the user is asked to read three randomly generated numbers. So we're sure there's a live person sitting behind the camera, either on their computer or on their phone. So once we uh, ensure that they are a live person, the second is to take that face and match it to the photo on the ID. And it's a continuously evolving process, as you can imagine, because bad actors, there are many of them, and they're becoming more sophisticated. So what happens is, as and when our machine learning models are satisfied that an ID seems genuine and the face matches it, the client receives it straight away. But if we're not sure, and if we suspect something may be fraudulent, we have a a team of fraudulent fraud experts that are double checking these IDs and faces. And when they're double checking, not only are they processing them, but they're also uh, labeling them so that the models get accurate over time. And if you can imagine there are 195 countries, or let's call it 200, each one has three types of ID, typically, a passport, a driving license, a government ID, and so that's 600 already. But every couple of years, there's a new version, so soon you end up with thousands. And we cover just over 5,000 ID types, so it needs a lot of work to ensure that all of these are assessed to be uh, genuine or not. Or in the United States, we have 50 states, 50 types of ID, right? There are more than 100 different versions in the US, exactly. And now we have a real ID initiative. Um, So just in one country, the US is probably a little bit more complex than than the norm, but it is uh, our number one market. So um, we are particularly familiar (laughs) with the, the US IDs. Right, and particularly with the U.S., um, the the of course, I guess um, your use case heavily depends on the KYC and and other compliance related regulation in that particular country. Now that is different um, in the U.S. Um, than in Europe. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. So um, the general uh, regulation is around anti money laundering, and just to put that into context, according to the UN, up to 5% of the world GDP is laundered money. That's almost $2 trillion. And that is used in human trafficking, drug trafficking, terrorist financing, and all these very uh, bad things. So in addition to that, what is probably a worse statistic is that the United Nations estimates that only less than 1% of that is seized by authorities. So 99% of that is successful. And that's a pretty bad statistic for any industry. So this industry, the security identity space, we have a 99% failure rate. Um, so as you can imagine, there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. Now, the legislations come in in different parts. There's an anti-money laundering directive, which is sort of a European uh, directive, and that stipulates ways in which businesses need to ensure that the people that they are onboarding are identified and that they are who they claim to be. The U.S. similarly has its own regulation. And they are globally, there are, there are usually typically a few options given so that the businesses can decide which option they, they choose to uh, they would prefer to go with 
most of all is called like a risk-based approach typically. Now, historically, it's been face-to-face -face or using credit bureau data. There's also other things like knowledge-based questions, you know, what's the third digit of your last electricity bill, for instance. But our approach um, is the government ID and facial biometric. And the reason why we've been lucky and have done so well is because it's becoming the new norm and a new standard as to getting the right balance between securely ensuring a person is who they claim to be, and yet there is not too much friction uh, as far as the user experience goes. Great, sounds very interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about when you guys started and when you decided to expand to the US and how you've been how you've been doing that? So we started in August 2012, uh, pretty much after graduation. And when we were able to secure some funding, the first check was about $20,000, which at the time felt like a lot. Um, uh, so we, we got going for about two years. And towards the end of 2014 is when we signed our first US clients. And that is almost sort of five years ago now. Uh, that is when I moved to the States to open our office there. And I was partly fortunate uh, in that my parents and some of my siblings live in California. So uh, between the three co-founders, I was the natural choice. And that's, it's been five years now. Why did, you, why did you want to open an office in the U.S.? So we were pulled by clients into the U.S. to some extent. Uh, truth be told, we only had angel investment at the time, not not venture backed as such. So we, uh, and at the time, our revenue was about twenty thousand pounds, or call it twenty five thousand dollars. So we went to our uh, angel inv investors and, and a couple of our board members at the time and said, "We have a client in the U.S. We'd like to expand there." And, but our revenues at the time was only 20,000 pounds. They said, well, the, the rule of thumb is that once you reach 20 million in revenues, that's when you go outside of your, your home market. So we explained that we're, we're some way away from that, but that this is a bit of a race and we don't have the time to get to 20 million. And in fact, if you wanted us to get to 20 million, the path to that is through the US. Uh, so. And your angel investor was based here? Uh, th th we had a few, but of the two who were on our board, correct, they were okay. here. Um, so we kind of uh, went anyway, and we s just raised a little bit more money, but then we started in the States, and it's, it's been tough, and it should be tough. We, we can count, you know, probably it's countless, actually, the number of companies that have tried to crack the U.S. So I think the reason why we've been fortunate enough to have done it is because of persistence and because we started early. But So you said that usually investors are telling you you've got to wait until you've got 20 million in revenue. To correct that, so uh, these were angel investors that that were super. We were very grateful for for their investment. They, they I wouldn't call them like venture backed, experienced, seasoned investors. Um, so that's based on I guess their research online that they found those statistics, and they're probably representative statistics for established businesses. But startups nowadays, from the outset, a lot do have a global mindset, and you need to. Maybe less so five to seven years ago, but absolutely now, the more and more startups I see from the outset. It's a digital world, so borders don't really make sense as far as uh, scale goes, with the exception of considering local regulation and things of that nature. You know, I totally agree. I mean, we see this also with a lot of our clients. For a lot of clients, it makes a lot more sense rather than to um, exploring all of Europe to do like one market in Europe, say the UK, and then go straight to the US because there's so much possibility of scale there, right? So the, uh, the the opportunities there are so much bigger because of the size of the market that you can grow the business a lot quicker if you go straight to the US rather than translating everything in 10 different languages, having teams all over and um, you know dealing with different legal systems and everything. Is that also your experience? In many ways, the, the language helped. So 
the next large na- English-speaking lang- uh, language country was U.S. naturally. Um, two years later, we the third market was India, for instance. But to to the U.S., if you want to be taken seriously as a company now, it seems as though you need to have not as a rule, but on balance, you need to have cracked the U.S. The very large investors. They are based in the U.S. and most importantly, a lot of companies that go global are headquartered in the U.S. So, when in the U.S. is kind of a, a necessity from in our mindset, at least from the, pretty much the outset. So, what's interesting is that you guys founded here 2012, and then two years later, you're in California opening an office. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how things were different? Do, do it, you know, having the office in California and here in terms of day-to-day operations? Yeah, sure. So, um, just to paint a picture it was kind of me with a backpack uh heading over there uh our office was kind of a, a, a one desk hot desk and we work on second street in san francisco during the week and i was in the weekends uh, i was down in uh, la so it wasn't easy at the start just because it's a different country as, as, as i guess you've probably noticed given it's your podcast but so for instance i'd call a few date suppliers at the outset and it took a little bit longer than um i had expected and these date suppliers asked you know you need to go through these compliance checks and so on and i said okay give me the list and i'll go through and i'll try and do what i can and um i wasn't successful in getting a key date supplier for the first couple of months so towards the end of that period i found this one supplier who was willing to sort of compromise a little bit and work with me. And I had to explain to him, I said, look, I'm in my mom's house in the bedroom. Uh, there is, uh, I only have my laptop. I don't have a shredder here. I don't have a printer. I don't have the things that you want. What is in, in my situation, what is the absolute minimum that you need so that I can pay you money and you can give me data? Uh, he said, the non-negotiables are a drawer with a locker or with a lock and a shredder. Uh, I said, okay, that's very doable. So I went and bought both at brought it in, took a photo, sent it to him. And he was actually very kind to, uh, I guess, sign an agreement with him. There was some other thing around the door had to be locked and so on and so on. The inspector actually came to the house and I wasn't there. And my parents had to show them that we have locks on the house and things of that nature. But anyway, it was it was not a uh, large-scale start, to, to, but it was a start. I, I was there and I was face-to-face with clients and I would ensure that I would go to their office just because we didn't have one. And when it had come to ours, I would just book a WeWork room. Uh, so it had to be very lean. Uh, but what was important, I was front and center, meeting clients, learning about, I guess, needs and finer nuances. And most importantly, I made sure that on my very first trip, we signed our first client, uh, which was pretty important to, to do. And that, that was essentially a signal to everyone else that um, invest more because, you know, we, we, with such limited resources, a shredder and, a, and a, a sort of a small cabinet with like a lock and my laptop, we've been able to sign our first client. So just imagine what we can do if you were able to invest and give us the chance to hire more team members. And would you agree that it's a necessity, at least when it comes to client expectations, that you have boots on the ground, that you are there, that you have a presence there, that they can see that you're making the effort you take it seriously, and you want to work with them, I rather think, than doing it all from London. I think it, it, it does. It depends what country you're in, the size of your clients, and what industry you're in. So what we are doing is uh, pretty, you could put it in a more sensitive category, uh, in the sense that every single user that a business is onboarding typically touches our system. And it's probably at the very 
early stages of the registration process. And the user is asked to take a photo of their ID and a photo of their face. So there's a real strong need to trust the brand, know the brand, and essentially it's a, it's, it's a trust relationship. So knowing the salesperson or the co-founder and things of that nature really counts. And for those reasons, um, so that's one uh, reason why in our business, you need to kind of know that if it was a simple like messaging tool or CRM, maybe face-to-face interaction doesn't matter. But because of the nature of what we're doing, until we have the most, I guess, an established brand, that, that, that relationship approach, like you're saying, that absolutely matters. The second is if it's a very large business, call it a bank or mainstream bank, mainstream insurance company. Just because of the sheer number of meetings and different stakeholders that uh, you need to meet, if you're local, it helps significantly accelerate that and give them the comforts. Uh, and that is why even now there are nine of us as executives, all our enterprise and key accounts has an executive assigned to each one so that there's a, a, a I guess anyone is only ever a phone call away from, from any questions. And and what, what was the nature of this trust building like out in California? So it was, the, the truth of it is, it's pretty much like honesty, I think, is, is the main thing. Uh, there is in the startup world this notion of like fake it till you make it. But but you can't do that with uh, other startups and you shouldn't be able to because the other startup is probably in, in their own industry looking to fake it until they make it too. <laughs> so we can't all be faking it all the time. So so the thing is, uh, but this, we at most startups, we speak the same language, right? It's Whoever I spoke with, it's probably no, I didn't have to say the fact that I'm the only person in the country and I'm a WeWork member. Um, it, they would have, it was a fair assumption that they, they would have made. So the point is, is like you uh, say, look, we're a small team. You know, there's a dozen of us. This is a product. Um, we don't have a lot of what you may get elsewhere, but what you will get is executive attention. We'll be very agile. You can be sure we're hungry for your business because if we don't get your business and like show you value, you won't pay us. We won't get investment and we're going to like cease operating. So you won't get a more driven, agile tech company than, than, than us with solving your specific need. So if you play on your strengths in that way and you stay very, very focused and those early ones that are good enough to give you an opportunity, you work hard to impress them, then you take it a step at a time. You, you then take that back to investors, you get more investment, you grow the team and you go to second client, third client while ensuring you're keeping everyone sort of fully happy and you absolutely deliver on every single thing that you say. It's because you want your the first and early customers are the ones that will be your reference points thereafter. And this is another key thing with the US, which I like a lot, in that if you work hard and you uh, impress a company, they will amplify your message and they'll tell everyone. The, the reverse is also true. If a company is not happy, they do tell everyone and generally they just speak a lot uh, and share, which is wonderful. In the UK, and I, I, I suppose probably across Europe, there is a tendency for um, people just not to talk to each other uh, as much, which is a shame. I should just say that is changing a little bit as we have more and more US uh, colleagues joining our company and others. This tendency for just startups to talk and share best practices and say this company is working well, this one sort of overpromise or whatever it is, that is uh, actually changing slowly here too. So it's interesting because you're talking about clients of yours who were also startups and I guess you kind of speak the same language culturally. What about when you were approaching bigger clients in the US, maybe kind of more established companies who aren't used to this whole kind of culture? We didn't do that until later. So we, at the outset, pretty much focused on fast-growing tech companies and startups, typically. Uh, so some eventually turned out to be quite large, but they were still, you'd put them as a, like a tech industry category. Uh, so it was closer to uh, three years ago or five years in for us before we actually started going to 
the very large mainstream institutions. So before you said that a, a number of your, I guess, competitors tried to crack the US and they failed, what do you think did you do differently so you succeeded there? I would actually go back to the honesty point. Like the, 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 when, whenever in our industry, there were a few attempts to do identity verification before us that didn't do it too well. They overpromised, and uh, there, there, there have been like serious issues and things basically breaking. So whenever anyone heard that you know we're from the identity verification space, they say, "Oh yeah, we're unhappy. Like this is not a good industry." And, and the answer was, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. We have a 99% failure rate, and, and we are all a very bad bunch. Let me just tell you from the outset. I would like to think we're the least bad, but what we're looking to do is build a partnership so that basically this this th we. we are uh, going to learn from your feedback loops and our system will get better. And at the outset, we just had rolling contracts like within one month notice, essentially. It wasn't even a one month notice, it was actually pay as you go. So um, there are certain structures you can put in place to make it a, a or reduce the, or mitigate the risk or the downside for any paying clients. And that's the way we got going. But we, we, you did, and you still have to, prove the value at every step of the way. It's, it's crucial to be able to do that on a continuous basis. That, that kind of bluntness and that honesty, do you think that's a typical European approach to so that no bullshit attitude? Just telling it as it is. Is that a virtue and a benefit that European entrepreneurs in general potentially could have in the US and that plays to their strength? I find that with most successful companies, it is the case just because... Uh, As I say, startup world is a on balance a fake it till you make it one at the early stages. So they all know each other in the sense that you know they know what you're saying is fake or not. The challenge becomes when it's an experience good, and what we are selling is an experience good. So we let's say we'd say pay ten thousand dollars a month. We'll do the checks for you, and we'll give you ticks, and, and, and we'll say which ones are fake and which ones aren't. You don't know what we're doing, so we can just be unless you do a QC and things of that nature. So that is why so many have been burnt in some way, so that they've paid suppliers, they've received results, and they've picked out fakes, and they thought, you know, this system was promised to be 100%, and there would be no fakes. So our approach in saying, no, we're like an antivirus software, we will miss fakes like anyone else, uh, but we are using machine learning, so our system will get better faster than anyone else's, but you're going to let us know as and when we miss fakes, we're going to train our models and then that's how we sort of build on these feedback loops. So it's partly the approach of A, not promising to be 100% from the outset and B, committing to them buying into your vision of the pace of improvement being by far more important than a uh, promise at the outset, which is just not possible to deliver on. And, and what do you find was their attitude to you guys growing and also kind of figuring out how to perfect your product? They wanted responsiveness and this is the thing especially in the very i'm talking like five years ago when we were in the u.s very early stages uh you can imagine requests came in and a lot of these requests we just didn't have and it would take time for us to build so that constant communication matters and you have tools now slack and others that you know they should be a slack channel with your early or flagship customers where you, daily updates is is quite normal uh, we as a company now, really try hard to source from suppliers when they, when there are startups available, just because we know, uh, you know, they will work really hard uh, to sort of impress us. And it doesn't always succeed, but we haven't, uh, but from the outset, whenever we sign, we make it clear, look, we know that we're only like your client number three or four, if that is the case. But, um, you know, kind of don't mess us around and keep us uh, informed of everything. So frequent client feedback matters. When you can't deliver on something, let it be known straight away and, and have a, 
uh, that close relationship so that you can jointly work on what is best and what is achievable. And they appreciate that. You're listening to Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bunnell Advisors, the consultants who help you expand your business stateside. So we are in London, we're by the River Thames, and I'm here with Mount Bunnell CEO Sebastian Sauborn. We have been taking questions all season. Send them to us at info at We've put that in the show notes. So Sebastian, we've been getting loads of questions. Jane from Bristol wants to know, is it true that everyone in the US is always suing each other? In my experience, uh, that, well, first of all, that's a great question um, because we always hear these you know, lawsuits and they buy a McDonald's drink and they burn themselves and they get 20 million bucks. You know? So in my experience, at least when it comes to a, a small business context, that is not the case. Um, I know very few people, if any, who was a business owner in the States um, who had been you know, hit by, uh, by a court case or had been sued. I mean, I know one um, example, I guess. Um, uh, I know a woman, she ran a pizza shop and then she had a, she had a boy delivering pizza and he fell from his bike, you know. Um, so then he sued her uh, for damages. Um, well, it wasn't really her fault anyway. But anyway, so they settled then on $800, you know, that, that, that he got. Um, but that is really the only example that I know. So, so no, I would not say that the US, especially when it comes to small businesses, is more litigious um, than it is doing business uh, um, in Europe. I mean, lawyers are extremely expensive uh, in the United States. Um, those personal injury lawyers that work for free, you know, or only based on, on a success, they will only take on a case if there is a massive possibility to make a lot of money. So I guess if you have a real case, you know, uh, where a big truck of a big supermarket chain runs you over, you know, um, prob- you were possibly um, can make some money out of that and it's worth, worth suing. But in most other cases, it's actually not. So no, I don't find it's very litigious nature at all. Sebastian, it's, it's funny getting this question because we do always joke about how everyone in the US is suing each other. Does, does that scare any of your clients who are thinking of expanding? Is it a question they come to you with? Yeah, definitely. So they all want to be extra safe. They all want to set these, uh, set up these uh, unnecessarily complicated uh, company structures, at least sometimes, because they think that they, essentially, their house in Watford, you know, is on the line for some business mistake they made in the states. So that's what their what their fear is, and of course, that's not the case. Cool. So send us your questions. That's info at mountbernell.com. We've put it in the show notes. What is business anyway? Business is everything we see along this street and much more. It is any enterprise which is organized to satisfy our wants for goods and services. Men and women establish businesses in the hope of making a profit. Thus they earn their livelihood by supplying goods and services which others desire. The world is so full of these goods and services that we take them for granted. Yet without them, we could have almost none of the things that we have come to consider necessary for our comfort and safety. So you guys also have an office in New York. Correct. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about when you moved there? And also, were there any differences in setting up the office in New York versus San Francisco? So five years ago, we moved to the U.S., starting in California. And four years ago, uh, one of our sales agents... uh, 
early sales agents in California said he would be open to moving to New York. So he went and opened our New York offices four years ago, and we've been building on that ever since. And so when your question on key differences between San Francisco and New York, uh, there are many. The things that are material for European headquartered companies is to consider the time zone difference. And an eight-hour time zone difference and a five-hour time zone difference is quite material because with an eight-hour one, you typically only have one or two hours overlap with your European headquarters, uh, whereas a New York time zone means there's a good five or six hours. And that can make a big difference because product meetings, getting to know the product, getting to know the culture, uh, a whole range of things uh, are much stronger and much better. And for most, uh, I guess, companies in the US, if you're New York headquartered, it really doesn't make that much of a difference to being a San Francisco headquartered one. So we have actually, uh, especially over the last three years, put almost all our energy in growing our New York office uh, rather than San Francisco. There'd only be niche use cases. So our, our, our chief product officer is there. Our design director is there. Uh, we still have a team of sort of about 15 in San Francisco. But the majority of the hiring and wherever possible, we actually are doing that in New York. And that includes, I mean, all types of staff like developers, um, you know, marketing, finance, or is it just a particular group of people you have in the in New York? We don't have developers in the US. Um, so of the team of 40, they are predominantly growth so sales marketing uh, in particular. Uh, our engineering base headquarters is, is London and we have a second office in Lisbon. Uh, in the US, we have five or so sales engineers. And in part because it's, it's quite tough to hire engineers in the US, but I think it's probably the number one best thing about being European headquartered is the access to the talent pool here, actually, specifically on engineers. But back to the sales agents, we have or, or the structure of the team. For enterprise clients, which are very large, i.e. companies that earn or are generating 250 million in revenue or greater, we have account executives or sales agents in their region. So we've divided the US into eight, and every territory has its own agent in there on the ground, but they tend to be more experienced senior team members where working as an individual contributor works, or excuse me, in a remote setting works, whereas the others are based in a hub, be it the New York hub or the San Francisco hub. And the sales agents in there typically are selling to uh, slightly smaller scale businesses. Um, d does it matter where your first hub is in the U.S.? I've come to learn in a painful way that it absolutely does. <laughs> so when I, and this is part of the reason or challenge of not getting great advice when, when we went or when I went. Uh, so I actually registered the company first in California. I was later told, no, that, that is not a good idea. Then I went to register in Texas where I had a sister living there at the time. I was told, no, that's not the right thing either. I ended up in Delaware at the end. Um, but it took about two years for someone on, on our team to basically to track all the places that, that we had and all the paperwork. Um, so it wasn't a, a clean start to begin with, but usually uh, getting good advice counts. Uh, and there are just so many more companies that do it now. Uh, examples like this podcast in particular has really helped. Back to it doesn't matter where your hub is. Um, because I knew California more, it was more relevant for me. But if I were to do it uh, again, I would start absolutely in New York. And so what, what advice would you give to companies who are where you guys were when you moved in terms of how they you know, decide where, where to base themselves for their expansion? Based on the specific goals that you're looking to achieve and what you want to prioritize and what is sort of the um, things that you want to optimize for. So naturally, there are the US has many different cities that specialize in different things. So are you more, San Francisco and New York are known for tech. 
New York a little bit more for finance and so on and so forth. Does media matter? Does journalism matter? Where do you want investors to, for instance, be? And on the investment side, New York and San Francisco no longer matters as much because they most have offices in, in both or at least most um, travel so often it is, it's, it's less of an issue. So once all those things are, are thought of, uh, I would say that top of mind should really be what is going to be the engagement and communications with the home base. If the home base is European, then that is a strong uh, point for the East Coast to be prioritized or, or uh, selected. So based on all of those, uh, you'd run with your first hub, notwithstanding that it's all about the team and all about the talent. So let's say uh, you decide on the East Coast in New York, you, you ought not to be too fixated. For instance, if you have an incredible first hire that happens to be in Chicago or Boston or elsewhere, there are those things uh, that should come into the equation. And finally, whereas in the US, it's kind of sparse and spread out, it's pretty normal for people to do Zoom calls or get a train. East Coast may be trained, but generally like a flight. So it's not as it, it would be, say, in, in Paris and France or London in the UK to be centered in the capital. Uh, and in fact, increasingly, because there are tech giants being based in key cities, sometimes being in a smaller city outside of the main hubs, especially if you're hiring engineering talent can help just because there's not just more availability, but maybe even less competition for those specific engineers. Are there sort of any uh, choice spots where you think there's great talent that more people should go? Someone who's listening and thinking. Um, there are many across the US. I can tell you which one not to, and that's San Francisco. <laughs> uh, San Francisco is actually um, across the board. I mean, talking to any, uh, any founder, uh, I have found it to be very, very difficult. Just because you have competition at the two sides. Not only do you have the big tech giants that are hiring um, nonstop, looking for talents of anyone who is happy to be in the vicinity of the Bay Area. But second, you have very new startups that come in uh, based on a PowerPoint presentation, raise 5 million sometimes. And then with that 5 million, with this attitude of like running fast, like pay whatever they need to pay to hire people. So you have competition from, from the two sides. And as a result, I would never base a company with an engineering base in San Francisco if I had the choice. Now, um, did you get um, um, American investment now, like VC investment? We did uh, pretty. So a couple of years in, so this goes back, uh, say, three, four years from now, uh, I started talking to, to U.S. investors. Not at the outset, because it just wouldn't take it. They may have not even taken a meeting. But um, once you prove that you're in the market and like you're here to stay, uh, there was some inbound interest. And equally, I proactively went and started speaking with some. Um, it helps usually if you have a client that has received an investment and you're close to that client to ask them for the introduction. It typically helps if you're talking to a partner at these firms. And um, so Tuesday, uh, VC, it was called uh, Crunch Fund at the time. Uh, there are an example, Microsoft Ventures, well, that was their old name, now it's M12 Ventures, Salesforce Ventures, and so on. So we have uh, FinVC and others, but as well as some angels like Charlie Songhurst uh, um, and Hank Vigil. So I started to not just learn about the venture capital ecosystem, but also bring on some key investors. But your, your, your key message is this, that you essentially say it was crucial that you first, in fact, were revenue generating in the US, even though maybe small revenues, maybe only a handful of clients, but you were there, you had the business, 
and then you approach the approach the investors. Correct. Don't get me wrong. If I felt that we could have got received investment without those things, <laughs> I would have definitely <laughs> asked for it. But if you want the the like game changing heavyweights, you need to be uh, seen as a serious company. And uh, for better or worse, you, you if you only have uh, one or two clients in the US, you're kind of seen as a European company. But when you land some major brands, then you're seen as a more serious uh, company. We clearly demonstrated, or at least we said in our hypothesis, in our business, this is a global problem and needs a global solution, and there's no alternative to that. And that is a massive advantage of being European headquartered, A, because of your technology base. And we named a dozen other examples of really strong European headquartered tech businesses that have done well globally, especially in places like the US. And secondly, European countries, by sheer nature of being smaller, are, tends to be better at expanding into other markets. And therefore, when they come to the US, if they are to crack the US, that they've kind of won in the sense that they can show, they can take that model and, and scale it globally. Whereas if it's a US company that is just focused on the US, they tend to find it much harder to expand globally. As, as again, not an absolute rule, but we uh, were convincing in our sort of arguments on that. And that helped. So, so it turned into a massive advantage. And the reason why we're so global, so a quarter of all our revenue is not from Northern Europe and is not from the US. It's actually from the rest of the world, specifically like places like uh, Singapore and Southeast Asia. So that is all was part of the message. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, And the investors in the US, they also saw those benefits that you were bringing to the table, like having a big engineering base in, in, in the UK and Europe. And they saw this as a benefit, um, you know, of your of your proposition, of your investment proposition. Uh, very much so. So, like global company, uh, our key executives are actually American, but they've either moved to the U.S. or they still our CRO is in the East Coast, our CPOs in the West Coast, for instance. And the product, like the clients, that's what that's what matters the most. Like, where are the key clients based? Uh, so, on, across all those metrics, we are now essentially seen pretty much as an American company. Um, just to just to wrap up. Um, what what do you think the biggest mistakes are that startups from the UK make when they try to expand to the US? Part of it is not recognizing like the sheer dedication that it needs. Um, uh, in the sense that you really need a co-founder. In my view, you really need the co-founder there. If you're an early stage startup, um, unless you have an incredibly experienced executive that you've worked with in the past, uh, it is a complete and continuous and effort that requires a lot of patience and persistence. Again, we're five years in. So, so although we've kind of won the market now, it really has take fi taken five years. It's only been in the last 12 months that we've been established as like the go-to partner in the US. And um, another piece of advice is like, it's not going to be cheap. Uh, so you, Everyone you, you, seems to say yeah, this. Yeah, well, that, it, it is true. And that your, your, your typical conference in the US is 10x what it is in, in most European cities. Just take, take that as a general rule. But the client size and the returns are all pretty much 20x, um, at least in our industry. So it's just a the, the arithmetic workout. And what are your tips of dealing with Americans and the American culture You know, on, on a very personal level? What are your tips? Um, they love Brits. Uh, so like, don't be shy about being a Brit. Uh, they also really like to know, I guess, what makes a company special. So the fact that we have an engineering base and a talent pool of like machine learning engineers and others, it's really a strength and it's seen as a strength. We, 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 in the early days, we pitched ourselves as like the, the, the unknown company from Europe that has come to the US kind of thing. And that kind of message kind of worked. I would uh, 
those are some of the key things. Oh, one last point is actually with, with, in the US, um, not just in companies talking to each other, but being a lot more collaborative generally is a big de deal and is encouraged. So for example, if we say to a US company or partner, let our design team come in and do a whiteboard session on, on the ways you could structure your workflow. Let our fraud consultants come in and, and train your compliance teams on some of the things they should be mindful of and so on. That is absolutely normal and very much encouraged. In the UK, especially if it was three or four years ago, saying, can we have a designer come and sort of meet with you? They'd say, why would you want to do that? Um, whereas now, again, probably because of the culture learning, the startup culture becoming more, uh, I guess, global and also, again, US colleagues and, and citizens coming and working in the UK, in Europe, it is becoming more common for that cross-collaborative work, but it is much stronger in the US and something to be not just celebrated, but actually uh, used for any European company that's headed out there. And just on the cultural points, any faux pas, things to be aware of? Um, they, that is a good question. Let me Don't drink alcohol for lunch, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, generally, like San Francisco people are more breakfast people, not dinner. Okay. Uh, and... Uh, New Yorkers are kind of a little bit of both, and what things not to do. Is it things that things that are fine here, just like Sebastian's saying, you know, uh, a drink or two at lunch. Are there any no, any things you did that you realize, whoa, this is this is going down badly? Uh, I well, the cultural references, <laughs> the TV shows that they see. Obviously, it will be different to the ones you see in the UK, but it's sometimes hard for us to know. Like friends there, like everyone will know what friends is. Uh, everyone has access to Netflix and things of that nature. But some of the cultural references, I suppose. I think that's uh, just oh, an they, age what, thing. What I, what I think I mean, you're yeah. too young, you know, I, to I, know I, friends. Well, the thing is, I, I can think of one now. Like you need to know the local sports team, right? Right. And, and, like, soccer, so, soccer is relatively small, and this is a big talk, talking point. Very big. So get to know the local club a little bit, maybe visit, and and because that, that kind of thing comes up all the time. And I think on that note, you know, they take like the local sport, like even college sport, so seriously. They even do. high school sport, you know, a lot of money in there. They pay, pay a lot of money for, I mean, often in the local high school, uh, uh, the football coach is the highest paid employee. Wow. Now every teacher makes 40 grand, he makes 120. I mean, wow. it's incredible. Yeah, it's taken incredibly seriously. It's very competitive um, very, and very, I guess, interesting to watch because the quality is so high. Is there anything you wanted to say about expanding to the US we haven't talked about? Start early and if your business can expand in the US in any way, make it a priority. Where can uh, our listeners learn more about Onfido? So we have a Twitter account, believe it or not. Uh, but my personal one is just my name, Hussein Kasai, uh, Twitter. You've been listening to Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bunnell Advisors. I'm Nastran Tavakoli Far, and this episode we heard from Hussein Kasai of the ID Verification Service on Fido. We've put their details in the show notes. Our sound engineer is Emmett Glynn, and our podcast manager is Novena Paunovic. We use some samples from the Prelinger archives, who've got some really cool historical material from the US. We'll be back in two weeks with more from another company who've made the move. Send us your questions to info at mountbunnell.com. See the show notes for more. Okay, we'll speak to you soon. Hold up. 